welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast, episode 400. Dang, 400 episodes in for my uh, longtime listeners. Thank you for your ongoing support, for rating and reviewing the podcast. That goes a long way in helping spread the word. And of course, for sharing this podcast. And if this is the very first time you're tuning in, welcome. There are so many great episodes for you to dive into in our backlog. I encourage you to check them out or just search our website at bossedup.org for podcasts by subject across leadership development, job search, lifestyle, wellness, all kinds of good stuff. But dang, 400 episodes in, I'm patting myself on the back here because I feel like we've been on a journey together. Today's episode continues that journey in such an inspiring and awesome direction. I'm so excited to be sitting down with Kim Scott. You might know Kim as the author of a phenomenal book, Radical Candor, which kind of took off and had a life of its own a few years ago when it first came out. Her latest book is going to be the subject and focal point for today's conversation because it is such a timely, helpful, and important read, especially in the era that we find ourselves in now, where dealing with microaggressions, harassment, injustice in the workplace is just so prevalent and so important for all of us and for all leaders in particular to really understand. So the latest book that Kim Scott wrote is called Just Work, Get Done Fast and Fair. Kim's not only the author of Just Work and Radical Candor, she's also the co-founder of a company that helps people put the ideas in her books into practice. She brings with her experience as a CEO coach at Dropbox, Qualtrics, Twitter, and other tech companies, although you'll hear more about her current feelings about what's going on at Twitter in today's interview. She was a member of the faculty at Apple University, and prior to that, led AdSense, YouTube, and DoubleClick teams at Google. So she brings a wealth of leadership experience from Silicon Valley that really informs a lot of her writing. This book, by the way, Just Work, was shocking to me in some really powerful ways and is such a font of information, such a thorough resource. I highly recommend checking it out. In fact, we are raffling off a free copy of Just Work on our Instagram account today. So go follow us at boss.org. Make sure you comment on today's post and you will get yourself entered to win a free copy of Kim's book. If not, she'll tell you where you can find a copy towards the end of this very fun, very interesting conversation all about dealing with aggression in the workplace. Without further ado, welcome, Kim, to the Bossed Up Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm excited for our conversation. I've been a longtime fan of your first runaway hit, Radical Candor, which is an excellent read so many Bossed Up community members are already familiar with. So I guess my question to start off today's conversation is how you went from Radical Candor to writing just work. What was the inspiration behind and really the motivation behind why this was such a necessary next step? Yeah. You know, I tell you, if you write a book about feedback, you're going to get a lot of it. And indeed I did. And it was some feedback that I got about Radical Candor that made me realize I had to write Just Work. Shortly after the book came out, I was giving a Radical Candor talk at a tech company in San Francisco. And the CEO of that company had been a colleague of mine for the better part of a decade. She's a person I like and respect enormously. And she's one of too few Black women CEOs in tech. 
And when I finished giving the Radical Candor talk, she pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I'm excited to roll Radical Candor out. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But I got to tell you, it's much harder for me to do it than it is for you. And she went on to explain to me that as soon as she would offer anyone, even the most compassionate, gentle criticism, she would get slimed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true. And as soon as she said it to me, I had sort of five realizations at the same time. (laughs) The first one was that I had not been the kind of colleague that I want to be, that I imagined myself to be. I had failed to be an upstander for her. I'd failed even to notice the extent to which she had to show up unfailingly cheerful and pleasant in every meeting we had ever been in together, even though she had what to be ticked off about at work, as we all do. And I hadn't really ever stopped to consider the toll that must take on her. Mm. So I'd been sort of in denial about the kinds of things that were happening to her as a black woman in the workplace. But the second thing I realized was that I had also been in denial about the kinds of things that were happening to me as a white woman in the workplace. And no, you know, I couldn't possibly be in solidarity with her if I wasn't really even in solidarity with myself. And I think the reason that I was so reluctant to notice what was obviously kind of hard for the author of a book called Radical Canner to admit I'd been in denial But I I never wanted to think of myself as a victim, and I never wanted to think of her as a victim either. You know, we were strong women leaders. So I think that's partly an explanation for my denial. But even the third thing I realized was that even more than not wanting to be a victim, I didn't want to be a culprit, right? Right. So I realized I had been most deeply in denial about the different ways in which I had actually caused harm to my colleagues in the workplace. I didn't intend to, but I had. And then the fourth thing I realized was that as a leader, I always imagined I was creating these bullshit-free zones. And I realized I had failed to do that because I had failed to recognize what was happening. And so what was happening? How was I supposed to sort of think about why people had accused my colleague of being an angry black woman, even though she's like the most cheerful, (laughs) nice, compassionate, level-headed person I worked with. And I think, you know, sometimes it was bias, sometimes it was prejudice, and sometimes it was bullying. And so sort of the fifth thing that I realized was that I had failed to consider how often bias, prejudice, and bullying masquerade as feedback. And so then I was off to the races writing Just Work. Totally. And we are definitely going to dive into that one because I think there's a lot to parse through when it comes to getting feedback in its many imperfectly human forms. You know, one thing you wrote at the start of Just Work is we can't fix problems we refuse to notice. And that really stood out to me because in light of what you just said of how you were hesitant to acknowledge the ways in which being a woman was impacting you is shocking to me given how the book opens. Your book opening introduction (laughs) reads like a trauma-filled just one horrible incident after the next that left my jaw on the table. And I I, I finished reading that opening section and was like, first of all, in case no one said this to you yet, like, I'm so sorry that all of those things happened, that none of that should have happened. I don't want to give any... Sp- <laughs> My very first job. Yeah, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but you were in a really hostile environment in a hostile yes. country, frankly. Uh, yes. You know, yeah. 
So how how do you think like was writing this book somewhat cathartic for you? Did it it was it painful to reconcile that part of your career with the fact that you had overcome a lot of gendered aggression, bullying, prejudice, harassment, discrimination yeah. in your career? Yeah, you know, it was mostly it was liberating. I mean, there were certainly moments when I would write something and then I'd just have to go take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> it was so exhausting. But the funny thing is, and now that you're, you know, sort of pointing out that, like, there's a lot of stories from my career yeah. in this book of different kinds of things that happen at different points, starting with my very first job. But here's a sign of how deep my denial was. When I sat down to write the book, I thought, well, you know, I haven't really experienced too much harm in the workplace, so I'll have to interview <laughs> other women. <laughs> yeah. And then when I started thinking about it, I was like, oh my gosh, every moment of, you know, like there's always something going on. And I've thought a lot about it. To a certain extent, I feel like it was adaptive not to confront it all the time because I think that's all I would have been doing. And so I want to acknowledge, right. especially for young women out there, you get to choose, you get to pick your battles. You get to choose when to engage and when not to engage. I mean, not just young women, but anyone who's underrepresented along any dimension. So if you're the person harmed, you get to choose how you respond. <laughs> and sometimes choosing not to respond is okay. I mean, as Audre Lorde said, your silence will not protect you. So what I want to encourage folks to do is not to default to silence, but if right. you do choose silence, to make it a proactive choice, not yeah. a default choice. I absolutely, Kim, want to talk more about how people who are harmed in those moments can react because that was such a helpful part of this book. But before we go there, let's clarify something you mentioned earlier, bias, prejudice, and bullying. You really clearly differentiate these three kinds of harm in the workplace which is so, so key. And then, frankly, you go on to talk about discrimination, verbal harassment, and worse, physical violations, all of which comes up, by the way, in the introduction yes. um, <laughs> in your own early career stories. So why is it so important to start by clarifying the difference between bias, prejudice, and bullying? What does that come down to? Well, as I thought about one of the reasons that I so often defaulted to silence in the course of my career I realized that very often it was, I was sort of conflating bias, prejudice, mm. and bullying as though they were the same thing. And so I didn't know how to respond. And so anytime you're faced with a big problem and you want to solve it, it's useful to break it down into its component parts. This is very you, too. This is very analytical, yes. Kim Scott, <laughs> yeah. solving the world one two-by-two two matrix at a time, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Except this is kind of like a three-by-two. It does get a little complex, yeah. Yes, it, it, gets, it gets complicated. So bias, I'm going to just offer some super simple definitions so that we can distinguish between bias, prejudice, and bullying. Bias, I'm going to define as not meaning it. It's kind of unconscious. And you don't really believe the implications of what you're saying. If you stop to think, it's just that you haven't stopped to think. Whereas prejudice is meaning it. Prejudice reflects a consciously held belief, usually involving some kind of unfair and inaccurate stereotype. And bullying is just being mean. There's no belief, conscious or unconscious. And for me, it's, I mean, it's not always clear in the moment which it is, but it's useful to try to sort of think, what is this? Like that kind of gets me because very often when these things happen, 
I'm sort of in fight or flight mode. Yeah, absolutely. And that often makes me shut down. And so just having a slightly analytical framework, like not a deep, profound thing, but what do, what do I think is going on? And then that'll help me figure out whether I want to respond and how to respond if I do want to respond. Yeah. And I, I think you make an important caveat in the book, which is if you freeze in that fight, flight, or freeze moment, don't feel bad about that. You know what I mean? Just because Yeah, we it's have... okay. Let's cut ourselves some slack. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even you wrote the book on this, and there are lots of instances of not having the words right when you want them. You know, I think so many women come to Boss Up and say, okay, how can I be a more assertive communicator? How can I think on my feet, speak off the cuff, instantaneously push back when faced with microaggressions or any aggression in the workplace? And it doesn't always happen that way. So you know, we can analyze this, we can script it out, and we have to give ourselves a break. So yeah. And and ask for help. Yeah. I think actually ask upstanders to do the talking. We shouldn't have to do all the work of fixing this. While we're on that topic, tell me the difference between a bystander and an upstander. And, you know, I want to dig into how we all can react yeah. in those moments, whether it's happening to us or someone else. But you've mentioned upstander, so let's define that. So an upstander is someone who stands up to injustice when they notice it, who intervenes in some way, whereas very often a bystander is silent and doesn't intervene in some way. And if you're the person harmed, you get to choose whether or not you intervene. But if you're the upstander, if you're the observer, I think you have more of an obligation to intervene. You don't always have to intervene directly. We can talk more later about the different ways. But I think you have an obligation to be in solidarity with the person who was just harmed. I mean, in some ways, I think it benefits you too. Yes. Right? Like if we can practice being upstanders, we're more likely to have those tools of advocacy available to us when we need to self-advocate. And I think that becomes a habit. So you know, thinking a little selfishly here, being an upstander certainly sounds like the moral good to, you know, the moral right thing to do, but it's also an opportunity to make a risk reward calculation that's slightly less risky, perhaps, than, you know, than trying to defend yourself. Standing up for yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's always easier, especially actually for women to stand up for someone else than for themselves. They're less likely to be penalized for it. And and there's another benefit of being an upstander as well. I mean, how many times have you noticed something going wrong and said or done nothing, and then it wakes you up at three in the morning and you feel bad about it? Yeah, you know? totally. When you notice things going wrong, you, you know, most of us want to, we want to intervene in some way. Well, I want to bring that back to how the individual being harmed benefits as well. I found this passage of you saying, you know, look, here's all the strategies, but go easy on yourself if you don't speak up. But we rarely acknowledge that, as you write, quote, by speaking up, you are affirming yourself. Every time someone says something that bothers you and you ignore it, a tiny feeling of helplessness creeps in. Whereas every time you respond, your sense of agency is strengthened. It's a very sneaky but powerful habit isn't it? It to is. To sort of say, I believe in me. I believe myself. I believe my own eyes and ears and what I just experienced is not okay. Yeah. And it, it is, it's also sneaky when you repress yourself often. I mean, you, you begin to disappear yourself if you're always, always defaulting to silence. 
So I think that's what, again, Audre Lorde meant when she said your silence will not protect you. It feels safer to remain silent, but there are hidden costs, I think, of remaining silent. Totally. And I don't know if you mentioned Deborah Chahonsky's research explicitly in this book, but she's identified something called the loss of voice phenomenon, whereby defaulting to self-silencing behaviors can become an unconscious lifelong habit, and it first emerges disproportionately in girls in puberty. When we learn that it's socially unacceptable, right, for girls and women to speak up and advocate on their own behalf. So those social penalties, we pick up on that pretty young and it sticks with us. Yes. Okay. So let's get back to responding. Whether you're an upstander or the person being harmed in that moment, how does it look different? Let's get into the nitty gritty here. If you are responding to bias versus prejudice. Yeah. So in the case of bias, I recommend an I statement. So just start with the word I and then see what comes out of your mouth next. One of my favorite stories about an upstander responding to bias comes from Aileen Lee, who started Cowboy VC. And she said she went into a meeting with two colleagues who were men, and they filed into this conference room and sat down at this big, long conference table And Aileen sat in the middle of the table because she had the expertise that was going to win her team the deal. And then the other side came in, and the first person who came in sat across from the guy to Aileen's left, and then everybody else filed on down the table, leaving Aileen sort of dangling. And that's often how bias shows up, just who decides to sit across or next to whom. But Aileen didn't let that deter her. She started talking. But when the other side had questions... They directed them not at Aileen, but at her two colleagues who were men. And it happened once. It happened twice. It happened a third time. And finally, her colleague stood up and he said, I think Aileen and I should switch seats. That was all he had to do to totally change the dynamic in the room. And that I statement was kind of a way of inviting others in to notice what was happening, what they were doing, and to change it. And they did change it. So why did he do that? He did it partly because he liked Aileen and he didn't like seeing her get ignored. But he also did it because he just wanted to win the deal. And he knew that if he couldn't get them listening to Aileen, they wouldn't win the deal. And so there's sort of, again, a self-interested part of this and a justice part of responding. So that's an I statement. He was sort of holding up a mirror to everyone. But if it's prejudice, holding up a mirror isn't going to work because the other person's going to smile in the mirror. They're going to like what they see. You know, (laughs) they believe that thing. So, for example, in the case of prejudice, a colleague of mine was in a hiring meeting and she had, and everyone who had interviewed all the candidates agreed that the most qualified candidate was a black woman who had worn her hair out naturally. And so they assumed that's who they were going to make an offer to. But the hiring manager said, oh, I can't extend her an offer. And my colleague said, why not? And the hiring manager said, well, I'm not going to put that hair in front of the business. Shocking. This is at one of America's most respected companies in just a few years ago. This is like not in 1963. And so what, how, what's the response there? 
I think in that case, like this hiring manager was justifying. She believed she was right and she was like offering justification. So this was not unconscious bias. So there you want to use an it statement. And an it statement can appeal to the law, it can appeal to common sense, or it can appeal to an HR policy. So it is illegal not to hire someone because of their hair, which it was in that state, thanks to the Crown Act. Or it is an HR violation not to hire someone because of their hair, which it was at that company. Or it is ridiculous not to hire the most qualified candidate because of their hair. Uh, so that's sort of an example of an it statement. And it statement really shows the line between one person's freedom to believe whatever they want, but they can't impose those beliefs on others. Yeah, from your mouth to this podcast to everyone in this country should hear those words. Yeah. I feel like we debate yeah. that in this country continuously, <laughs> and yet we do state it as fact. So how does that look different if you're the person harmed? You know, I'll give you an example. So I was chatting with a guy before a meeting one day, and he said to me, I'd just come back from maternity leave and where I, I had had twins. And he said to me, oh, well, my wife doesn't work because it's better for the children. And I didn't think he really believed that. I thought it was kind of, I assumed it was kind of an unconscious bias. So I made a joke and I said, oh, well, I decided to come to work today because I wanted to neglect my children. <laughs> and I was expecting him to laugh and apologize and we would move on. Right. But no. He said, oh, no, Kim, I have these studies that show that, you know, blah, 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 oh, blah, blah. Oh, he dug in. Yeah, he, he believed it. And so now I need an it statement. So now I said, it is an HR violation for you to tell me I'm neglecting my children by showing up at work today, <laughs> which it was at that company, thank goodness. And that had the desired effect. He kind of backed way off. Mm. Uh, but then, you know, I didn't want to over-delegate the situation to HR. There is a time and a place to go to HR, but in this case, I really had to work with him. And so I wanted to talk a little bit more with him. So I said, look, I have a bunch of studies that show the opposite of what your studies show. But my guess is that you don't want to read my studies any more than I want to read your studies. So why don't we just agree that it is my decision together with my spouse, how we raise our children, just as it is your decision together with your spouse, how you raise your kids. And the reason why it was important to me to keep talking to him was because he had some authority over which clients I got. And I was afraid that if he thought I shouldn't be showing up at work, he would he would prevent me from from traveling, from getting some of the good clients that would require yeah. travel. And it was not his place to decide whether or not I could or couldn't travel. That was my decision. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I wonder I guess part of me feel it feels futile to speak up in those moments sometimes because you could stand your ground as you did and stand by your it statements. But if he's still operating with that prejudice, will it inform his behavior? Like, can you change his mind in that moment? I guess what is the intended effect, as you mentioned? Yeah, it's, it's an important question. I was not trying to change his mind, but I was trying to change his behavior. And so I was putting him on notice that if he sort of did something that, that prevented me from getting the clients I wanted, I would go to HR. He knew that I had put him, that was why I started with that it statement. 
And that's why I think HR policies are so important and laws are so important because you're not trying to um, engage in changing someone's mind. That's really difficult. There are times and places where you may want to do that, but I was not so close to this person that I wanted to challenge his beliefs all the time. But I did want to change his behavior. I did want to challenge his behavior. That was sort of why I responded that way. There's a really interesting book called Rising Out of Hatred about some college students who wanted to change the beliefs or challenge the beliefs of a white nationalist who they were going to college with. And a rabbi said, it is not your job to move the boulder. It's just your job to lean against the boulder. And I think that can be kind of an interesting way to think about engaging with people when you do want to engage with people on their beliefs that you really disagree with. Because if you go into it thinking, my goal in this conversation is not to change this person's mind but to improve my own thinking and to sharpen my own arguments, then all of a sudden, even if you don't change the person's mind, the conversation is worthwhile. And you're sort of saying this person is worthwhile. It's really tempting, I think, in this polarized world that we're living in, for everybody to retreat to their own corner and only engage with people who they agree with. But I think that's a big mistake. I was invited to give a talk at a company, and I vehemently disagreed with some of this company's policies. And I almost said no. And then I thought, that does not seem, I'm not walking the talk there if I won't go. So I said, well, you know, as you can tell by looking at my Twitter feed, this was before, (laughs) this was when I used to tweet, which I no longer do very much anymore. But you'll see that I disagree with a lot of your policies, but, you know, let's talk. We should talk. And I gave the talk and it went well. And during the q and A, I I had, it was almost like there was a voice inside my head yelling at me saying, Kim, these people are not your enemies. These are your fellow Americans. Of course you should talk to them. And then after it was over, a woman who had been in the audience came up to me and said, do you believe this? Do you believe that? And I said, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And she kind of cocked her head and she looked at me and she said, huh, you don't seem like an evil person. (laughs) Oh my God. You know, I I would have thought it was ridiculous, but I had just had more or less the same thought myself. There's a theologian named Martin Buber, and he has this notion of an I-thou relationship. And an I-thou relationship is one in which you may disagree with someone, but you can see their full humanity, notice their full humanity, embrace their full humanity and see beyond the disagreement. Yeah. And I think I think we need to do more of that these days. I think that's certainly aspirational. Yeah, I, I, very, I hear you. Very and hard I think, to do. <laughs> I do think, yeah, I think that's a spiritual journey we're all on different, you know, stages of. But I, I do find that there's something very radical, frankly, about not doing that work if this is a person who refuses to see your humanity. You know what I mean? Yes. So yeah. there's there's work involved in having those engagements and conversations. And particularly, and you make this case very clearly in the book, the people who are harmed shouldn't be doing all of the educating and no. you know, and the leaning against those boulders. So I do think it's kind of it's a pick your battles refrain once again there. Yeah. 
absolutely. I mean, as Tony as Tony Morrison said, the per the function of racism is to prevent you from getting your work done. <laughs> and, yeah. and so don't, you know, I think it's something similar could be said of sexism or homophobia or like don't let it prevent you from being your best self and doing your best work. Yeah, don't get distracted. Yeah, absolutely. It's a Michelle Obama moment where it's like, if they go low, you go high. Keep flying, keep moving forward, right? I have one final big part of the book here I want to briefly touch upon. We've talked about upstanders. We've talked about those being harmed. I think that's the hardest piece of this, honestly, is imagining how you'll react the next time something like this inevitably happens to you. What about leaders? You have an entire section here on what leaders can do to just first and foremost react appropriately when goes down, for lack of a better word, yeah, yeah, you know, when things yeah. like that happen. But then also, what obligation do leaders have within organizations and institutions to take preventative measures to make sure things like that, like harassment, discrimination, physical violations, bias, prejudice, and bullying are not tolerated? Yeah, I think it's really important to think about what leaders can do. I mean, certainly in the moment, they need to respond like upstanders, but I think they have a bigger obligation, and that is to prevent these things from continually happening. I mean, they're inevitably going to happen, so it's hard to say they should prevent them, but they should respond in a way that prevents it from happening again. And so in the case of bias, one of the things I recommend that leaders do is create bias disruptors. Sit down with your team and say, you know, what is the word or phrase that we're going to use when we notice bias? So the thing I like to say is purple flag. So if I notice that I say something that's biased or that you say, you'll see me wave this purple flag. But you don't have to adopt purple flag. Just choose whatever words that your team will most likely actually say. One team I worked with said, yo, another one would throw up a peace sign. Another said, ouch, you know, when they noticed bias. But, or I think you didn't mean that the way it sounded. You know, whatever it is that you'll say. So that's a shared vocabulary. The second part is to teach people how to respond when their bias has been disrupted. Because there's also the role of the person who caused harm. And that's, a, I don't know about you, but when I realize that I've caused harm or said something biased or done something worse than that, I feel deeply ashamed. Yeah. And I rarely respond at my best when I feel ashamed. So I try to work with teams to learn how to move through that shame. It's not the responsibility of the people around you to prevent you from ever feeling ashamed. Your shame is yours. My shame is my responsibility. Your shame is your responsibility. We each have to own our own shame and figure out how to get out of lizard brain and re-engage our executive function. So I can tell you that I feel shame in the back of my knees. I can tell you where I feel it in my body. It's the same physical sensation that I get if my kids walk too close to the edge of a precipice. I mean, it's real fear. And Working with people to learn how, when their biases have pointed out, to say, thank you for pointing it out. And either I get it, I'll work on not doing it again, or I don't get it. Can you tell me what I did wrong is really important. And then the third thing about bias disruptors is that leaders need to have a create on their team a shared commitment to make sure that if you get to the end of a meeting and no bias has been pointed out, that you take an extra 30 seconds to ask, like, what did we miss? What mm. did we say that was biased? Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that. I know I have to let you go. I could talk to you all day about this book because there's so much in here. 
And so do you have any closing words for folks who are listening to this and daunted by it and feeling like I am dealing with harassment, I am dealing with bias and prejudice and maybe even workplace bullying, which was the topic of a recent podcast episode we did here. You know, how can we temper our own expectations of ourselves in those moments? Yeah, I think I would I would like to encourage people to end the default to silence. Make sure that you are making a conscious choice and that you're not giving up your sense of agency. And I would also encourage people to build solidarity. I mean, sometimes just sitting down with a friend and telling stories about the ridiculous thing that happened and laughing about it or crying about it or yelling about it is really helpful. So the thing that makes me more optimistic than anything else is the extent to which people talk about this stuff now out in the open in a way they didn't when I was starting my career. And also just cut yourself some slack. You know, you're not going (laughs) to respond perfectly all the time, but make sure that you're not giving up your sense of agency. I love it. I think that's a great place to to pause because we here at Boss Up, we have a speak up program focused on practicing assertiveness in real time. And like everything we do here, we believe we derive courage via community. So it's about building that courage community, right? To make sure you're not going it alone. So Kim Scott, thank you so much for this. Where can folks get their hands on just work, get done fast and fair? (laughs) Anywhere you buy books, you can get this book at your independent bookstore, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can also follow me if you go to justworktogether.com or radicalcanner.com. Lots of podcasts and blog posts and the like. Less and less on Twitter, more and more on LinkedIn. Yeah, you're voting with your digital feet. I love it. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much for being here, Kim. Thank you for everything you're doing. For links and show notes and more details on everything Kim and I just discussed, head to bossedup.org slash episode 400. That's bossedup.org slash episode 400. And now I want to hear from you. Let's keep the conversation going. Tell me about your experiences going from a bystander to an upstander or that paralyzing feeling when a microaggression or you run into bias or injustice or bullying when that stops you in your tracks at work. How have you responded? How have you dealt with those moments of microaggression or just straight up harassment and aggression in the workplace? Let's keep the conversation going as always in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook or our Bossed Up group on LinkedIn, which is small but mighty and growing every day. Again, you can find links to join those two spaces in today's show notes. And I'd love to hear what you think of what Kim had to say today. Until next time, let's keep bossing in pursuit of our purpose. And as has been stated, uh, as is the motto of America's first black women's organization set back in 1896, let's keep lifting as we climb. 